Wait. Did that waitress listen to a word I said? This steak is medium rare. I asked for it medium, and I wanted extra gravy on my mashed potatoes. Let me ask you something. How hard is your job? How intelligent do you have to be to take a food order? Jesus! Ma'am, ma'am, you're absolutely right, and uh, I apologize. I'm gonna get this fixed for you right away. Good. Now I can finish my salad. Gentlemen, we have our first official biatch of the day. <laughs> the first thing we do is we add a little extra gravy to the mashed potato. Ah, that's it. Here you go, ma'am. I had the chefs take extra special care of it for you. And I'm truly sorry for the inconvenience. You know, we should probably feel guilty, but she broke the cardinal rule. Don't fuck with people that handle your food. Welcome to the Eat Your Content Podcast. I'm your host, Rich Herrera. Thank you for tuning in. You have a lot of podcasts to choose from, but you chose this one, so I appreciate your time. Uh, this is another edition of Eat Your Content Refire, where I go back and uh, look at some movies and watch some older TV shows and kind of see how uh, you know how they affected the pop culture in general. Uh, so on this one, we're going to be talking about the 2005 cult classic, Waiting, and I have a special guest with me. I'm going to introduce him in just a second, but just a reminder to follow us on socials at Eat Your Content on TikTok and Instagram and at Rich Herrera on Instagram and X, formerly known as Twitter. Uh, so I want to welcome a special guest to talk about this 2005 movie, Waiting. The director and screenwriter of the movie, Waiting, is Rob McKittrick. Rob, thanks for coming on the pod. Oh, thanks for having me. It's very, very, it was very sweet of you uh, to reach out to me. I thought it was very, very nice. Yes, yeah, so I was coming up with some thoughts about what I wanted to cover next, and I woke up one morning, and for whatever reason, this movie came to mind. It was weird. And so I went back and rewatched it. I was like, oh, my gosh, this movie is so hilarious. I, I got to see – I just got to reach out and see if you'd be willing to do it. So, you know, the worst you can say is no. And uh, I thought, well, I'll, I'll reach out, and you were gracious with your time, so I definitely appreciate that. So um, so as I was saying, you're the director and the screenwriter of Waiting, so um, I'm sure you're uh, maybe not directly involved with the strikes that are going on, but I thought maybe we would get your take on, on what's going on with the w, WGA and the SAG after strike, how it's affecting you um, and, and things like that. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, listen, it's affecting me like it's affecting uh, all screenwriters, which is to say, you know, I'm not able to uh, pedal my wares to the, uh, <laughs> to the studios and networks and all of that uh, right now. Um, you know, definitely had a couple things that were uh, sort of in development or in pre-development or, you know, a few irons in the fire and all of that sort of came to a crushing halt. Um, yeah, it's been a it's been a it's been a bummer. Um, you know, I've always I've always had a kind of, a, a, you know, listen, I support the strike. The, uh, you know, the WGA uh, has been very, very good to me. You know, uh, they're good to the writers like, you know, you have a pension plan, you have health care, you have, you have all of these sort of things that uh give you longevity uh, even after you are no longer a professional uh, screenwriter, uh, which is amazing. Um, but I've always kind of had a, a, a little bit of a sort of a mixed feeling about the the strike in general, um, only because, you know, I've been through, um, you know, I've been a screenwriter now for 23 years. And so I've been through like the 2008 one and now this one. And the 2008 one was, um, 
it was a it was a bummer for feature uh, screenwriters because and this happens a lot. Uh, there's a just a hell of a lot more TV screenwriters than there are feature screenwriters. So I think that their needs are typically attended to first. Uh, there's just not as much representation on the negotiation committees uh, of feature uh, of you know sort of feature screenwriters. So I've always kind of felt like. Um, a lot of times the feature uh, screenwriters end up sort of taking it on the chin uh, in the sort of overall support of the bigger group, which is uh, sort of TV screenwriters. Um, I hope that's not the case uh, this time because it does seem like we all sort of are fighting for um, some um, some similar things, you know, hoping to get residuals and streaming and AI and all of that sort of stuff. But but yeah, uh, I definitely, I, I, I remember feeling after the 2008 uh, sort of strike that we came out on the side, you know, once we came out on the other side of it, that uh, yes, some of the you know ma mandatory minimums were raised and all of that, but in general, I didn't feel like the feature screenwriters got anything. And in fact, I feel like, and I, I maybe this is just sort of uh, my memory uh, fucking with me, but I, I almost feel like we took a step back. I, I seem to recall that um, there used to be multi-step deals when you were a feature screenwriter, where you know, so if you got hired to uh, for for a script or for a rewrite. Or, or even for a, an original project, you know, you'd be hired, and that um, the deal would include the draft, and then a rewrite and a polish. You know, and the the benefit of that is it gives you time to find it. You know, because your first draft, you might get it 70% uh, of the way there or 60% of the way there, but there's still a lot of room for improvement. And that's why you've got that rewrite that's sort of built into the contract where you get your notes and you do the rewrite. And then again, they come back and they, you, and hopefully by that point, after getting their notes back, you are much closer to the target. And then you only need to do that polish step, which to get it even closer. But um, my recollection is that after that strike, um, they went to one step deals, um, which is which is a bummer because um, for a bunch of reasons. Number one, um, it puts a lot more pressure on the writer that you've got to just nail it that first time, you know, like on that first draft, you've got to hit it because if you don't, they might not bring you back for a rewrite or a polish, which is, uh, you know, which just adds to the anxiety. And also it ends up, it can sort of end up being uh, exploitable because you know you've got to nail it so hard on that first draft they can kind of get away with doing unofficial like director passes or producer passes, which are essentially rewrites that you're doing for free. And um, and again, so my, my memory of it was that that wasn't the case before the um, before the 2008 strike, but it was after. So, uh, yeah, so I always kind of like a, a feeling of like, oh, man, so we strike for that time. And now I feel like the position of the feature writer is actually worse than it was before the strike. Uh, but again, maybe uh, uh, maybe. Uh, my, my memory of that is uh, mistaken. But in any case, so I carry that like a uh, little bit of like, oh, I hope that is, I hope we don't repeat sort of the sins of the past as it relates to um, feature screenwriters. Um, but uh, yeah, but you know, we're, we're in it. Um, I'm, I'm definitely not optimistic that it will be over anytime soon. I hope I'm wrong. Uh, I love being right. It's one of my favorite things to be. But uh, in this case, I hope I'm wrong. And um, my, uh, yeah, my, I just spoke to my agent the other day and he thinks that it's actually gonna end sooner. Uh, but yeah, my, my, my fear is that we're looking at, you know, until next year, uh, January, February, before it gets um, resolved. Yeah, I follow a few screenwriters on, on Instagram and TikTok. Adam Conover in particular is, 
is really digging his heels in. He's part of the negotiating committee, and they are. And and I think what's different between this strike and the last strike is social media. Uh, it, it wasn't as big of a deal in 2008 as it is now. So I think you're getting a lot more public support for the strike. Me personally, I'm in, I'm in favor of the strike. I mean, I, I, I you guys are the are the engine that keeps it running. I wouldn't be doing this podcast if it weren't for, for guys like you uh, putting out the entertainment that, that we all enjoy every day and, and me talking about it. So, um, you know, I support the strike and, uh, and, and I hope everything ends sooner rather than later. Um, but, you know, good luck and, and hope everything comes to fruition. I mean, ultimately, it is inevitable. Like, they are going to have to bend at some point. Like, you know, the biggest thing here is that they made this big bet. Everybody got into streaming. You know, there was a wonderful business model that worked forever, which is advertisers pay you lots of money to show your shows and all of that. But then Netflix came along and upended the sort of business, and everyone chased that. And, uh, and you know, as a result, they sunk in a lot of money, and a lot of them have lost a lot of money and they kind of want to pass those losses on to us, but that's just not how it works, you know? Like, uh, you've got to figure out a way uh, to change your business model. Uh, and even, you know, God, you see Netflix has has an ad tier, you know, has a tier where they actually include ads now. So they're almost reverting back to how it was before because they realize, hey, you know that business model that worked for 60, 70, or however fucking long it was? Uh, maybe we should go back to that. But yeah, it's, you know, they clearly made some mistakes that resulted in some large losses, but that doesn't, you know, just because they made those poor business decisions doesn't mean that we have to uh, shoulder uh, shoulder the weight of that. But anyway. Exactly, exactly. Well, thanks for the update on that and, and enough of the downer stuff. Let's get let's get to the reason why you're here. Uh, sure. So I want to get a little bit about your background. Um, so you, you're originally from Bradenton, Florida. I'm actually in Jacksonville, Florida, so that's kind of fun. Uh, grew up in Bradenton, and you kind of got that bug early, right, in, in, in high school and, and had a, a mentor in high school and kind of found the right path. So, so tell me a little bit about that. So, no, so uh, not not high school, but actually the community college that I went to. Okay, uh, okay. Yeah, and, um, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, I mean, I was always a huge movie buff and all of that, you know, in, in high school and those all just, I think like most uh, kids my age, you know, I just watched a absolute ton of movies. And then separately, I was always kind of a little bit of a smart ass and a pervert, um, you know, and uh, when I got to community college, um, you know, I started writing a humor column for my like community college paper. And so that was like the first time I'd ever written anything just to try to be funny. And then separately, you know, uh, yeah, I took some film classes, uh, this, uh, great, uh, teacher named Del Jacobs. He was amazing. And, you know, he, I don't know, it was, it was, that was over my first like sort of, uh, you know, introduction into sort of the, the film. But even then I have to say, because that was, uh, you know, I'm 50, I'm, I'm old. That was, you know, 92, 93. It didn't even even though I loved movies and even though I thought I was funny, it, I, I grew up, uh, you know, poverty level poor in Bradenton, Florida. And the idea of being a screenwriter or a filmmaker or doing anything like that was just like, yeah, sure, that sounds great. But it was just so beyond the realm of plausibility that it wasn't even necessarily something I considered at all. But, um, but then, you know, in 94, Clerks came out. Uh, and, you know, Kevin Smith made this amazing little uh, comedy that, uh, you know, little black and white comedy for $30,000. And I saw that. And, and then, you know, at the same time, El Mariachi had come out uh, and Robert Rodriguez wrote this book about his experience making El Mariachi called uh, Rebel Without a Crew. And, um, and then also in The Company of Men was another movie that came out a few years later that, uh, you know, Neil LeBlanc made for $50,000. But in any case, so you had these movies and especially reading that book 
it it's just so and, and and Kevin Smith, he was very active on the message boards and just to hear him talk and to read that, it so demystified the process and it made it it made it feel like, okay, you don't have to be rich. You don't have to, you know, like you don't have to have gone to a huge a school or anything like that or um to to have a chance. And so you sort of take all of that. And then, you know, at that sort of time, 90, I think I started writing the script in 96 or 90s, I think 97. But in any case, yeah, you know, kind of having that sort of background from clerks and reading the books and all of that, it made me feel, hey, maybe this is something I could actually do if I could come up with an idea. And, you know, I was waiting tables. I, you know, in Bradenton, I uh, waited tables at a chain restaurant called Steak and Ale. And, um, which I, I don't believe is around anymore. But in any case, so I worked there and I, I, I worked at a Bennigan's very briefly uh, in Sarasota, which is right next to Bennigan, or Bradenton. And then I moved up to Orlando um, and I started working at Roadhouse Grill, uh, another city chain restaurant. And that was the thing, you know, uh, Orlando is about two and a half hours away from Bradenton, but it was like the exact same experience, you know, like it was the same type of people who waited tables, like those archetypes were there and the same type of people were the cooks. And we were all complaining about the customers and the same sort of, there was this sort of universal experience, even though we lived two and a half hours away, there was such a consistency there that that was my first thought of like, oh, wow, this actually is a universal idea. So many people wait tables. What this could be a really, really fun idea. And then also separately, just because, again, not having any aspiration to make it in Hollywood with actors or anything like that. My thought was I'm going to have to make this independently. Also, hey, this is a movie that takes place primarily in one location. This is exactly the type of movie that I might be able to make on an extreme budget um, and hope to get into a film festival. Um, so, yeah, so that was, you know, so that was sort of the origin of it. Um, and yeah, just started, you know, I was again, working at a uh, roadhouse grill, uh, which sucked. And then I would come home and I just started, you know, it started off. I was just writing fun dialogue, just little, little bits and pieces that I had with almost no like connection of what the story was. And then slowly the story started taking shape and all of that, and, you know, and, and it was all sort of picked from like real stuff from my life. Um, there, you know, uh, not that there is much of a story to speak of in waiting. It is a kind of a hangout movie, you know, a day in the life sort of thing. But the loose story that drives it is Dean finding out that one of his old high school friends graduated with a degree in you know, uh, electrical engineering. And, um, and that came from, I was, when I was still living in Bradenton, um, I was hanging out with my buddy Pancho, and he told me how he waited tables, um, he had to wait on uh, our, our old friend, uh, Tim Lucas, uh, who was Tim Lucas, I was in all the same honor classes as him, and, and Tim was totally nice, he was not like a jerk whatsoever, very, very respectable, very cool, but just Pancho told me like how low that made him feel. And then I, of course, myself, I was like, Jesus, I was in all the same classes as him. And, you know, here I am still at community college. I haven't graduated. Like, what the fuck am I doing? And I got like just secondhand, like shame hearing that story, <laughs> you know, like, because if that had been me, I just, my ego couldn't have taken it. So anyway, so it was like, you know, that little sort of bit ended up kind of being the little loose thing. But yeah, you know, essentially what I was trying to do was somewhere in between like a clerks and a days confused, just sort of like a hangout. Um, if you, you know, I've, I've said this a million times, but like the idea was, you know, if you've uh, never uh, waited tables, you'll watch the movie and you'll laugh 
because uh, dick jokes are universal and hopefully there's enough witty dialogue and everybody's been out to eat and everybody has that fear of like, wait, if I send it back, are they gonna do something to my food? Like those are kind of universal uh, ideas and fears. So if you've never waited the tables, uh, you'll still laugh because it's a fun movie. But if you have waited tables or if you've worked in the service industry in some capacity, you'll laugh maybe just that much more because you know that like it's, uh, you know, it's rooted, it's grounded in at least somewhat of reality, you know? Um, the other thing I, I, I've said before is like, um, in the movie, I wouldn't say that it's realistic that everything that happens in the movie would happen in a, in a single day, but any one of those things that happen in the movie could happen on any given day. You know what I mean? And so it kind of, right. it has a texture of reality um, enough that I felt like, you know, again, if you've waited tables, you go, yep, I've been there. I've done that. That is, that has happened to me that, you know, uh, you know while, while doing them. Anyway, yeah, that was the, uh, that was, the, listen, uh, also it is worth noting, uh, you're just going to find out I'm a very long winded, fast talking uh, person. So uh, I apologize in advance for my long winded uh, answers. No, man, go. It's it's fine. It's I have no time limit, so it's all good. Um, and, and one thing that you're saying is, you know, once you once you've broken through that veil of okay, what do I need to get started? Once that barrier of entry became a lot lower, then it just became you know writing and and writing about what you know. And I think um, that's what you were doing there. Is you wrote about what you knew. And I think what's great about waiting is that it's so universally uh relatable whether you're on one side of, of the kitchen or the other uh and, and i think that's what's so funny about it so you have you're, you finish the screen uh, the screenwriting you're, you're done with the script what did it take to shop that thing around and and finally get it up on the big screen so uh i'll, get, I'll try to give a, a fast version of the, the story but like <laughs> so i finished writing the script and again my aspiration was to make it independently like that was it i was going to try to raise up money i was going to copy kevin smith and, uh, you know, and Robert Rodriguez and Neil Blue, just that was the goal, uh, because, again, trying to put it out in Hollywood just did not even seem uh, beyond. No, in no world was that possible for me. Right. So I was raising up some money, just literally asking, like, my friend's parents and, my, you know, my mom's step, my, my stepdad, my mom's husband or whatever. You know, and I raised up like twenty five thousand um, dollars. I was giving the script out to anyone and everyone who would read it. Uh, I actually, I remember I went up to uh, Kevin Smith. He he had like a um, a film festival that he would host uh, for many years. I don't think he does it anymore, but back then it was called like the Askewniverse or whatever, or something like that. And it was the first year. And so I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go up. I'm gonna, I love his movies. I'm gonna watch his movies. And I knew Kevin Smith wouldn't read the script because uh, he said that on his. Please don't ask me to read a script. I'm not gonna read the script. But there were like a couple friends in his inner circle that I thought maybe I could get one of them to read the script. Uh, and then, uh, so this guy, uh, Vincent Pereira uh, was, again, he was sort of in, uh, actually Kevin Smith produced a movie that Vincent directed um, because Vincent was one of those early guys uh, that got him involved. In any case, I like got in contact with him and I asked him if he would read it and he said he would read it and I was super excited. And I got up there and I gave him the script and, uh, and then he never read it. <laughs> and then, uh, but there were guys who did a couple, um, that did a, a, a fan message board for Kevin Smith. And I gave them the script, just hoping that maybe they would read it. And then somehow they would give it to him or someone. He, I don't know what I was doing. Anyway, they read the script and they thought it was awful. <laughs> they thought it was so bad. They thought it was way too contrived and way they were like, this movie will never get made. And, um, and then I rewrote it a lot. 
right? Uh, actually, it was a good thing that they did that because they were they were actually right. Uh, their harsh criticism, because I was like, man, if anyone's gonna love it, it's this audience, and they didn't like it. Uh, so that led to some rewrites. But uh, sorry. Uh, anyway, so then we just started doing local castings in Orlando and raised up, like I said, at that point, I think I'd had um, $24,000, in, you know, raised up. And we started doing local castings. And again, giving the script out to anyone and everyone. And we volunteered for the Florida Film Festival. Uh, my buddy Dean Scholl, who is a credited uh, producer on the script, uh, he was helping me make the movie in Orlando. Um, he gave it to this uh, local producer who read it and loved it. And we uh, met him uh, on the Universal Orlando lot. So, you know, he's big time. And anyway, it was a horrible meeting. He had nothing to offer um, and um, except for his expertise and he wanted 15% of it. Um, and so bad meeting, uh, but on the way out, um, his uh, assistant was a very cute receptionist uh, named Sandra Marling. And my buddy Dean Scholl, apart from being a great guy, and he's also very good looking, is a very charming person. And uh, so he got her phone number and because they just he, they were attracted to each other because they were both attractive people. And that's what happens with attractive people. They attract each other. And so um, and she, he gave her the script and she loved it. And she went to high school with this guy named Jeff Bayless. Now, Jeff Bayless, I don't know if you ever watched Project Greenlight. It was an HBO show. Um, a great, great thing. Uh, he's featured prominently on that uh, show. He is uh, he is the star, one of the stars of the first uh, two seasons. Um, he had just got promoted from an assistant to a creative exec for Chris Moore's company. Chris Moore, uh, he was a producer. He produced American Pie. He produced Good Will Hunting. Um, and so she gave the script to Bayless. And uh, Bayless read it um, at the, the first five pages. He hated so much that he said to himself, uh, "This I am giving this script exactly five pages to get good. Otherwise, I am going to pass on it. And then there is a line very early on in the movie that I, I wrote it with the intent of kind of shocking the reader and also shocking the audience, of making them go like, whoa, where, where the fuck did that come from? Uh, where he basically, Monty, played by Ryan Reynolds, says, if you want to work in a restaurant, you know, everything you need to learn is all about learning a routine. But if you want to work here, you need to ask yourself one simple question. Uh, how do you feel about frontal male nudity? And uh, Bayless said he read that line and was like, wait, what? What I just meant? And he flipped the page back because he assumed he must have missed something. Like, where the fuck did that come from? Uh, but from that moment on, uh, he was hooked in and he loved the script and he championed the script. Um, and then also uh, Jeff Bayless's next door neighbor was this guy named Tim Schultz. And Tim Schultz worked as an assistant to an agent at William Morris, a uh, guy named Chris Fenton. And so through those weird degrees of separation, um, I got the script to Chris Fenton, uh, who read the script and loved it and said, hey, I can sell this. I know this is this is really, really great. Uh, I would love to represent you. And, you know, and again, at that time, I'd stopped working. I got fired from a Roadhouse Grill. I was working at TGI Fridays. Um, and uh, and yeah, you know, like, I, again, I was the waiter at TGI Fridays. And then uh, all of a sudden I got these people to read it. And Chris Fenton got a... Um, you know, he ended up taking it out and we ended up getting a deal with Artisan Entertainment, um, which for me was a very big. I mean, obviously, it's a big deal. If you get a movie or whatever, but uh, particularly coming from Orlando, because Artisan uh, had just put out uh, the Blair Witch Project and they discovered the Blair Witch Project guys. And those guys were from Orlando. So it was like, oh, my gosh, this is Kismet. You know, this is sort of perfect. But uh, yeah, so that was me sort of getting. Um, but um, so they were willing to uh, option a script from me. And they were going to give me a blind script deal, which is great, you know, kind of pull me out of, uh, you know, working as a waiter in, uh, in Orlando and break my, uh, get my foot in the door as a screenwriter. But they wouldn't let me direct the movie. 
they, uh, which understandable, why would they? I was a waiter in, uh, you know, I, my, my previous experience was a waiter at TGI Fridays. I'd never directed anything before. Why would they entrust me uh, to do it? Uh, but that did make the entire thing bittersweet, uh, I'll admit, you know, because again, uh, if you watch the movie, if ever there was a first time filmmakers movie, it is this one. All of it takes place in one location. And it's just a bunch of guys, you know, uh, and girls uh, just saying uh, perverted things to each other uh, in my And so, uh, but in any case, so they, um, they optioned the script. I moved out to Hollywood and I began sort of, you know, rewriting the script and sort of breaking in as a screenwriter. Um, and then two years went by and Artisan never made the movie. Um, they had a really, really bad year after Blair Witch, they had a, a, a few setbacks. And so the movie uh, just kind of got stalled. And um, after two years, uh, the rights reverted back to me. Um, and, um, and at that point there was another director attached and it was just like a, it was a whole thing, but then the rights reverted back to me. Um, and when the rights, like uh, maybe a month before the rights were coming back or a few months before, I started kind of putting the feelers out of like, hey, I'm gonna own this again. Maybe I could go someplace else and see if there's someone who would support me as the director and that has money. And I met a gentleman named Rob Green who had just been promoted to this company, Media Ventures. Is it Media Ventures? I think it was Media Ventures. I might be wrong about the name. In any case, he read the script and he liked me. He bought my bullshit. He was willing to support me. And so then, yeah, when the rights reverted back to me, uh, I fired the director, uh, I nominated myself, uh, I seconded the nomination, it went without a problem, and suddenly I was the director. And yeah, and then I hooked up with this company and they had partial funding in place, they had about a million and a half dollars. And then, but they were, um, they, we felt like we needed a little bit more money to do it sort of at that level. And took another, maybe two more years, I wanna say, something like that to get the rest of the money. Um, with a lot of like sort of, you know, the look like the movie was going to happen and then it would fall apart in a twisting pile of wreckage uh, because waiting is a, I mean, you, you've watched it. It is a offensive movie. Like there's a lot of divisive comedy in there and it would be one of those things where we'd give the script to a finance company and half of the uh, people, the execs were like, this is the funniest thing I've ever read. And the other half were like, well, there's a bunch of people showing their dicks to each other. This is horrible. What is it? What is happening here? And so, um, and in those cases, uh, you know, you don't choose the divisive movie. You choose the one that everyone agrees on. But uh, in any case, a few years later, uh, you know, uh, ninety or uh, two thousand four, I should say, uh, we finally found another company that was sort of looking for exactly, precisely the situation we had, which is a movie that wouldn't necessarily be made by a studio uh, with partial financing in place. And then it was uh, off to the races, and we ended up making the movie in 2004, I think, thereabouts. So between finished screenplay and release date, how many years was that? Yeah, so I, again, I, I'm pretty sure I started writing it in 97. That's my memory of it. And the movie, uh, when did the movie come out? Is it, was it, came, it came out in 2005 or 2006? Yeah, 2005. Yeah, it's all a fucking blur to me. Uh, yeah, so I know, I'm pretty sure it came in October, I want to say. Either October or September. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so you're looking at uh, math. You're looking at eight years from when it uh, finally got released. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's so many twists and turns. Like who who knew, right? You thought you just write the script, yeah, would, go to a couple of film festivals, and and Cinderella story's done. Uh, yeah. Listen, you know, obviously it all worked out. About it, you know, it ended up sort of being a best case scenario, and, and sort of that I had in my mind of like, you know, we got a theatrical release. And uh, it did okay in the movie theater. It didn't, you know, by no means did it set any, uh, you know, um, box office charts ablaze. But that ended up being a nice advertisement for the DVD uh, when DVDs were still a thing, and it ended up being becoming a pretty massive hit on DVD. Um, so, and that was in my mind. I was like, you know, 
that that was the best case scenario that I could have hoped for. You know, like there was no aspirations of the movie coming out and making a hundred million dollars. That's that's absurd. But it was like, hopefully this will be a movie that comes out in the theater and then lives the rest of his life uh, on home video. And it'll be one of those movies that, uh, you know, people uh, quote occasionally. And because that's what I did for Clerks and all of those other movies, you know, Days Confused and all of those other movies. So. Well, speaking of box office, I mean, it, it, it did pretty well. It, it made a profit. Uh, I did some Googling on it, went to Box Office Mojo. Uh, the budget uh, was $3 million, Domestic was $6 million, uh, pull, and the international was $2.5 million. So at the end of the day, at the end of its theatrical run, for a budget of $3 million, it made eighteen point six. So that's that's not bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you know, so it, yeah, made yeah, sixteen million and change overall uh, is what it, I think it made in the domestic box office. But um, the um, which sounds great when you look at the budget, but when you factor in uh, prints and advertising and all of that, it probably like here's the truth. It if it broke even from its theatrical, it barely broke even because I'm sure they spent you know ten fifteen million dollars on print and advertising, and then you also have to split some of that money, uh, half the money or whatever the percentage is with the movie theaters. So uh, the truth is, in the theater, it didn't make money, right? At best, it might have broken even or lost a little bit. But a lot of times, these types of movies, those end up sort of that you bake that in because you know uh, the theatrical ends up being almost an advertisement for the DVD, which again, you know, right now the, the DVD market is basically uh, non-existent. You know what I mean? You have the sort of niche market Blu-ray for your cinephiles or what have you. But back then, uh, the DVD market was alive and booming. And so it was a major, that was just a absolutely massive part of the pie. And, and, and in that regard, you know, uh, I was waiting, just blew away all expectations, you know, just like very, very, very successful movie. Yeah, so the DVD sales, I think, is where the cult following came from because uh, the the tomato score on this one for the reviews was only thirty percent, and not great. But the audience score is seventy five, you know, seventy five percent audience score, and I and I think a lot of that is just people that I talk to that have seen this movie can relate immediately to a time where they waited tables and can identify with so many of the different characters that are in here. Um, so it really became a, a cult classic thanks to the DVD sales and getting a new audience uh, to watch this movie. Um, so I, I want to talk a little bit about the cast because you, you look back on it now almost over 15 years later, and this is a stacked cast for essentially an independent raunchy comedy of the mid 2000s right uh because you have you know you have ryan reynolds who uh, up to this point was really known for blade trinity and van wilder um he plays monty and then you have justin long uh coming off a of dodgeball and galaxy quest he plays dean and then anna uh, anna ferris um she was in the scary movie franchise up to that point so um Big names now, kind of up and comers then. Uh, and then the supporting cast, you have John Francis Daly. He was in uh, Freaks and Geeks, better known for Bones. Uh, and then Luis Guzman. He's, you know, great character actor all around. Seen him in a bunch of stuff. And I think the biggest name probably is Shy McBride. He's awesome. uh, <laughs> so Shy, Shy McBride coming off of uh, uh, Boston Public. He plays Bishop, the philosophical dishwasher, um, and then some other up-and-comers. You have Alana Ubach, Vanessa Lenges, Caitlin Doubleday, David Kochner, Todd Packer himself on here. So you kind of look at this cast, right, and and then up-and-comers, but now just completely stacked of just comedic legends um, on here. So talk to me about the casting of this movie and how that worked and and getting kind of this perfect storm of people to, to play the this movie. Yeah, um, you know what? It was a... Um so I'll kind of, I'll take them piece by piece on um, a lot of them, you know? So like with uh, Ryan, 
Um, Ryan actually, he became a board before I was attached as the director, when there was the other director attached. He just read the script and immediately he realized that Monty is his voice. Like, you know, nobody can pull off that sarcastic, uh, you know, smart ass, uh, smart, a little bit smarmy sometimes. Like, like he just, it was so obviously, it's as though it was written for him. And when he read it, he felt the same way. Um, and then, you know, uh, again, there were, he, uh, he liked the other director, but then we sat down, we met and, you know, he just, we had a good, good conversation and he said he had a good feeling about me. And so he was that early attachment and, you know, it was, listen, um, you know, we, he it was attached before Blade Trinity had even been shot, but he had still done Van Wilder and Van Wilder was for its time. It was a, it was a, it was a really successful movie for its budget. It was a, it was a, it was a nice little pleasant surprise hit. And so he had a lot of, um, so he had a lot, you know, that was our big, honestly, Ryan, he was attached very early on and he was our, sort of our big name. Um, in the case of uh, Justin, um, you know, Justin, um, one of uh, Jeff Bayless, one of his good friends, Rose Raider, worked for Ben Stiller's company who had done Dodgeball and said that Justin was great. Uh, we sent Justin the script and he passed. He said, no, nope, not for me, uh, it's too raunchy. Um, but then I, you know, sat down, had uh, had lunch with him, kind of talked him through it, and you know, said a little bit of the spiel that I said to you, which is like, yes, of course, it has all of this, but hopefully, this will be one of those things that connects with a very sort of uh, specific, um, you know, uh, anyone who's worked in the service industry, this will kind of become a mantra film for them. Like, wow, someone nailed, and they really, really captured uh, what it's like to wait tables. Um, and I also you know one of the things that was important to me uh, with the movie. Sorry, this is a little sidebar, but I remember saying this to him, which is. I really hoped that whatever you're feeling about um, the service industry or waiting tables, it would be reflected that you would feel the same way coming out of it, that it wouldn't glorify it or, or, or you know, or the inverse. So like if you um, have never waited tables and thought to yourself, thank God I've never waited tables, you'd watch waiting and in a certain level go like, these guys are kind of fucking losers. <laughs> like all they do is, you know, like this is horrible. Uh, I'm glad I'm not doing that. Uh, but if you do wait tables and you're in the middle of it, or you or you fondly reflect on your time uh, in the service industry, you'll watch the movie and go, "Fuck yeah, that's exactly how it was." You know what I mean? Every night you had cash in hand, and everybody hung out with everybody, and everybody was sleeping with everybody, and everybody partied every night. It was such a fun time, you know. So I really, really hope to capture uh, that uh, that no matter what your view on it was, it was going to be reflected uh, in the in the final project. Um, but anyway, sorry, uh, back to that. You know, uh, so yeah, Justin, just um, you know, he. He really, really liked what I had to say. And uh, and so, yeah, so we got him. Uh, Anna, again, Anna actually auditioned for the previous director. And I watched her audition tape. And I was just like, man, she is so good. Uh, and this is, you know, she'd done the scary movies. But, like, you don't necessarily get a chance to sh really show your acting range necessarily fully on a, in a parody movie, you know, because everything's so heightened. And she was just so good that I was like, she's the girl. Like, I, I knew it. I was like, you know, I, I knew I wanted her. And then I met her and she just said, yes, you know, we hit it off. It was one of, you know, that's a common refrain, you know. Uh, Louis Guzman, I just wrote him. I loved him so much, obviously, in Boogie Nights, but in Carlito's way. And I was just like, I just loved him. And so I just wrote him the biggest blowjob letter of just <laughs> telling him how much I am absolutely uh, in love with him. And I was like, listen. This is, uh, in, you know, the role of Radimus, you know, the whole thing, we, I think we shot him for a week, so it wasn't very long. And I was like, I was like, listen, the pay is awful. We have basically no money, but it's for a week. 
uh, you get to have sex with the hot girl in the bathroom stall, which is kind of fun. I, I, you know, I don't know. It's just like, uh, I think he just appreciated my enthusiasm and how much I just admired him uh, and loved him. So that's how I got him on board. Uh, I think uh, Dane Cook, I think is a fun one. Uh, you know, because Dane, Dane Cook's in there. Um, I just watched Dane and this is, you know, obviously before all this sort of negative, crazy Dane backlash, which is absurd to me. But um, he was, I just watched him every week at this comedy club and he killed every fucking week. And I was like, I just want him in the movie. And, um, and but you know, listen, in a different world, if like Ryan had not been attached, Dane Cook would have been a perfect Monty because he can also at that time, and he could just play that sort of sarcastic, sort of smarmy jackass a little bit. And, uh, but that role was already taken. And I remember telling him I wanted him to play, um, at the time, there were, uh, his character's name is Floyd in the movie, but at the time he was just the cool cook you know, just the guy who wasn't Radimus, who had like funny things to say throughout the movie. And when I told him I wanted him to play that role, he was so upset. Like, he was like, in his mind, oh, I'm going to be police officer number three. You know what I mean? Like, this is the role. Come on. Do you know who I am? And uh, so, uh, but I talked to him about the role and I was like, no, you're going to, every time you come on, all you do is say a funny line and get the fuck out. And, you know, again, we're only going to need to shoot you for a few days. And he said, okay, well, I have to have a name. You got to give me a name. And I was like, okay, great. And then I thought of Floyd uh, because I love true romance and I thought of Brad Pitt's character and that's just a fun name. Um, but then, so he said yes. And then I'm down in New Orleans uh, during pre-production and he calls me and he says, hey man, I'm sorry, I can't do the movie. Uh, I just started, uh, I got, um, we're going to do it. I'm doing a TV pilot. I'm the star of it, you know? And so I'm just not going to have time. And I begged him <laughs> I literally i was like dane you cannot see me right now but i promise you this is true and it was i am getting on my knees i'm on the phone with you so you you can't visually see this but i'm on my knees begging you to figure out a way to make this work you are going to be so good and in what little time you have you are going to be so memorable and he was so flattered by again just like i really really thought he would be perfect for it and he was and so uh you know that's that's, that's how we got him and then, you know, most of the others, I'm trying to think if there are any other outliers, I think, uh, unless I'm forgetting somebody, um, everybody else just came in and auditioned and they were amazing, you know? Like, it's just one of those things where, uh, you know, the, the audition process, watching that, because again, that was my first time doing a movie, um, my, my only time directing a film. Um, but, um, you know, going through the casting process, it made me appreciate the difficulty of actors because so many of them were amazing. I cannot even say like there were, I remember when we started casting our Dan's, you know, like the manager, David Kechner came in and he was hysterical and he was obviously, I mean, he's so fucking good in the movie, but there were five or six other Dan's who are all actors that you recognize. You might not know their names, but you like, you've seen them in a million things and they were all amazing. And it, it actually just kind of like made me feel like this degree of empathy for the working actor because I could cast any one of these guys and they would be great. They might put their own little spin on it. You know, this guy might play the, the cornier version or this guy might play the slightly sleazier version or this guy plays a little bit like the, you know, whatever, a little more straight. But they were all great and I had to pick one of them. Uh, but you know, in any case, so it was, that was, you know, that was the case over and over and over again, you know, certainly like, you know, Alana Yubach, when she came in as Naomi, it was very, very clear. She was the girl. She just knocked it out of the park in her audition and it wasn't even close, but, uh, but yeah, you know, it was, that was the process though. It was just like the slow, I just, you know, I had a really good casting director, Annie McCarthy, and, and also, you know, the positive byproduct of it having taken, like at that point, you know, we were doing the castings in probably 2003, something like that too. Yeah. Um, 
I'd had a lot of time to think about the movie, think about the characters. That's the one positive byproduct of a movie taking that fucking long to get made, is you have a lot of time to think about all of the little details of it. And so um, I, you know, I do feel like I had a really, really good eye in conjunction with sort of the great talent around me to find these people, um, to, to really kind of find the perfect people for, um, for each role. So speaking of the characters that you developed um, over this script, how many of these characters were based on actual people that you worked with at the various restaurants and how many are based on just archetypes of those people turned up to 11? Sure. Um, So, you know, the the most obvious one, the one I would sort of always say is like, you know, Monty was me on my best day, better looking. That's how I would, that's how I describe, uh, uh, which I think is a fair uh, statement of uh, Ryan Reynolds all around. Uh, And, uh, you know, so yeah, that was, so that was it, you know, like, um, but also I was stressed about the fact that I was, you know, again, I was, you know, when I started writing waiting, I was 23 or 24. Uh, I was a, you know, sort of a nerdy honor student, but I went to community, co- I didn't go to college, I went to community college first, then I dropped out of community college, uh, then I was an ecstasy dealer for a while, you know, the way you, you know, the way you are, you know, just, you know sometimes yeah. that happens, we, we've yeah. all done it. Who hasn't? Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I was an ecstasy dealer, and then uh, a friend of mine wore a wire for the cops, and I got set up and went to jail. Oh my God. That old story, you've heard it a million times before, but no, but in, seriously, like, you know, I was like, I was like a really, really good student. And here I am at 23 on probation and I don't even have a college degree yet. Like what the fuck happened to me? And here I am waiting tables at uh, Roadhouse Grill or TGI Fridays or Steak and Ale. And so Dean's plight, that feeling of like, what am I doing? Was also there. It was also part of me, you know? Um, Beyond that, I would say most of them were sort of archetypes. You know, I took a little bit, I had a, a good buddy of mine named Mike who would always end up getting in the friend zone with girls. So that kind of inspired Calvin a little bit of like, you know, he would he would always be the super nice guy and it would always end up going into friendship. Um, so that was, you know, that was definitely inspired by, you know, several conversations I had with him over the years. Uh, but yeah, oh, and also actually most critically, I should say, um, there was a, um, excuse me, there was a cook at Steak and Ale named Radimus who played a game where they showed their genitals to each other. <laughs> that, was, that was it. Uh, the first restaurant I ever worked at, uh, they played that game uh, as a means to pass the time. And uh, and I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> and I was like, I can't believe that this is happening. And people are, uh, you know, we're finding a way to uh, show my testicles to you in some weird way. And then I'm also going to serve you this side dish, you know? So um, anyway, but yeah, Radimus was, he was just a character and uh, yeah, he spearheaded the game. So that was like, that's probably the person who's most, his name was Radimus. Uh, he spelled differently uh, in, um, in waiting in the movie. But other than the spelling, that is essentially a rip from the headline person, you know? Um, but, but, you know, actually that's not even sort of true. So I, I you know, there's the archetypes of like, you know, in, uh, 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 when I worked at Steak and Ale, there was like the waitress who was like been there way too long and was just burnt out and frazzled and just on a hair trigger to complain about everything. And then when I moved up again, when I moved up to uh, Orlando and started working at uh, Roadhouse Grill, it was the same thing. Uh, there was a waitress who'd just been doing it a little bit too long and her name was Naomi. And so I just took her name. And then also there was a hostess named Natasha at Roadhouse Grill. Now that I think about it more, I actually took some of those names, but she represented, like I used her name because I thought Natasha actually was a good name because uh, um, 
It just there's something young and Vixen-esque about it, whatever. But in every uh, you know, at, at, again at the Steak and Ale, there was always a hostess that all of the servers were flirting with, and uh, and all of that. And so again, that was that sort of consistency. Uh, but and then the last one was uh, when I was in um, Steak and Ale. Uh, my, there was a manager named Dan, and he was an asshole. And then when I moved and I started working at a Roadhouse Grill, the manager's name was Dan, and he was a he was a different kind of asshole, but still an asshole. So I was like, okay, well that's perfect. But uh, but yeah, and then you know, but yeah, so I guess that covers uh, that covers a lot of them. But you know, those were types. Uh, but yeah, but I took those sort of specific names from actually at the time I was writing at Roadhouse Grill, and I said, oh Naomi, oh Natasha, oh Dan. Uh, but, you know, what they represented was, uh, that, you know, this is one of the things that I've enjoyed over the years uh, when people who uh, have reached out to me saying they really enjoyed the movie or whatever is um, I've gotten this question of, did you work here? Did you did you live in Idaho, uh, you know, and work at this restaurant? Because I swear this is exactly my restaurant. You know, that's something that I've heard many, many times over the years that I like almost to the T captured the very specific essence of that that restaurant in uh, wherever it was, you know, that, that's why in the movie, we never actually say the town or the city. It's not supposed to be Florida. It's like, it really is supposed to be any town USA, just a suburban, a suburban city that has chain restaurants was uh, essentially what I wanted um, because for, for that exact reason, because I wanted it to feel uh, universal. But anyway, sorry, again, uh, tangents. No, you're good. You're good. So that's what I was talking about earlier. It's like the, just the relatability and, and people like you're saying, writing into you and, and, and messaging you saying, look, I know exactly where where I am, and when when you're uh, playing all these characters, and I, I'm this guy, I'm this girl, and this is exactly how I felt. And the, the relatability of this movie is is I think what kind of catapulted it to to cult cult classic status. Um, so let's talk a, a few uh, memorable scenes and kind of get some stories behind them. And, and if you haven't seen Waiting Yet, spoilers for an almost 20 year old movie. Uh, I don't know what the spoiler rules are, but anyway, spoiler rules. So, <laughs> Yes, I don't know what you could possibly spoil in the movie. I mean, I, I guess you could spoil the joke itself, but yes, we've been warned at this point. And also, by the way, if you've never seen the movie and you watch it through the lens of 2023, you're going to have some issues with it. Uh, so let's just let, you know, like, let's acknowledge that now. You know, it is a, uh, you know, there's lots of jokes in it. I, by the way, I had not watched the movie in over a decade, uh, but then it was on Netflix like a couple years ago. Uh, and so I, I watched it, you know, my wife and I watched it together and listen, I, I was, I, I actually felt very, very proud of it. You know, again, there are definitely jokes that, uh, to, you know, Rob, Rob, the of the day, screenwriter of today wouldn't make, uh, that are not appropriate, uh, for by today's standards. But at that time in that place, uh, you know, certainly it was an edgy comedy even for back then. But, uh, but yeah, so I, I don't sit there and go, oh my God, I can't believe I made a joke uh that uh had a slur in it or whatever because at it at that time and you know into when i wrote it certainly when i wrote it in 97 but even when it came out in 2005 uh you know the comedy sensibilities had not changed and uh and those jokes played uh you know but um but uh but yeah i i, I, I actually watched it um you know, a few years ago, and I felt—I actually felt really, really—I uh, felt good. It was—it was nice. It was nice to watch. I thought it still—it held up in the way that I had hoped that it, that it would hold up. I, I felt very, very good about it. Well, I was going to ask you this question later on, but since we're, we were talking about it now, waiting yeah. is—waiting really is kind of a time capsule of a movie, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, raunchy comedies were were all the rage in the in the early 2000s. So you have films like Waiting, films like Anchorman, mm -hmm. um, Adam Sandler's filmography during that time. It kind of all fall into that raunchy comedy, and you, you were just mentioning it. Could a film like Waiting be made today in 2023? 
Well, I mean, no. Uh, you know, like, <laughs> yes. I mean, okay, hold on. That's what it's Which is, yes, but it would just be, I mean, there are jokes that you just could not make. You know what I mean? Like, literally, uh, they play a game where I'm going to show you my, uh, I'm going to pull down my pants and show you my dick. And then if you look, I'm going to call you the F word that is not fuck uh, for doing it. <laughs> That would never happen today. Are you kidding me? That's insane. You couldn't even imagine it. You know what I mean? Like it's one of those, uh, those weird, you know, it's, it's just one of those things, you know, there was a certain time where I still used the F word that was not fuck. And then at a certain point you're like, oh yeah, that's kind of icky. And now I get it. And I would never do that today. You know what I mean? And so that's what like, but can a universal comedy be made about an industry or something like that. Of course it can, but you know, uh, comedy uh, um, sensibilities change as we sort of evolve. Uh, so you know, on the conceptually, you can make a movie like Waiting, but sure. the jokes themselves and the raunchiness and some of the some of the ways that we uh, approach it, uh, absolutely not. Uh, you know, uh, and which is fine. You know, again, and I don't like you know every time. I remember. Um, when it came out on uh, Netflix, you know, it got a little bit of bump. And so um, uh, because I'm a needy human being, I searched it on Twitter just to see what people were saying about it and all of that. And I remember reading like one post where someone reached out to Ryan Reynolds and like, Ryan, now that waiting is on Netflix, are you going to apologize for the jokes that were made that, you know, and I'm like, which is absurd. Again, you know, like if you're still making those jokes today, then I think that you have a reason to like, okay, take a look at yourself because, uh, you know, again, read the room and understand that the room has changed, but you don't look back and go, oh my God, I can't believe you made that joke when that joke was being made at the time uh, and it was considered funny. But in any case, but yeah, so uh, again, the conceptually, yes, could be made, but in so much of the comedy, so much of the humor, you'd have to figure out a, uh, a different way into it. And, and, and I think that's fine. You know, listen, it's harder and harder as a comedy screenwriter to try to walk that line. And, um, you know, and I, and I, I still I still struggle with that to this day as a uh, primarily R-rated comedy screenwriter. Um, but uh, but yeah, but that is that is uh, that is the task at hand, and you just sort of you have to you have to know what your audience wants, and you have to know what your audience is going to say. Whoa, that's not funny. You know, it might have been funny 20 years ago, but it's no no longer. And you've just got to accept that and figure out um, new ways to be funny. Uh, you know, uh, according sort of by today's standards. Yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking about watching it uh, the other day in preparing for this podcast. I was like, wow, this is. I mean, back in the mid 2000s, like you were saying, edgy then, but unacceptable today. It's it's crazy. Absolutely. Like, there's no way you could get away with with writing the words that came out of that screen in in 2023. And and listening to some other podcasts doing retrospectives on waiting without you, uh, a, a lot of them were like, yeah, I like it, but I kind of don't like myself for liking it. <laughs> it's kind it, it's it, it's kind of funny listening to people watching a time capsule of a movie through the, the lens of 2023 and it's it's it is a different era now and and people are, are real quick to, to kind of pull the trigger on things now that they weren't so quick to pull the trigger on before in terms of like unacceptable right so um but yeah i agree with you i think you you could make a a, a movie about uh the the restaurant industry from a waitstaff perspective but it would it would be different it would it would not be waiting as as we see it uh now uh, uh, oh well one thing i did want to say uh, just because uh, you you've mentioned before and i, I wanted to sort of uh, remark which was um i remember you know uh, as you said you know rotten tomato the reviews were they were not great i think it was like so i, I think you said 30 but it might even be lower than 30 i think maybe it was 23 27 it was bad 
And, uh, and you know, I read, and listen, that sucks. Nobody wants to, in the world, you, nobody wants to re- read a review where they say your movie was bad. Like it just, of course, what I look, I would love it if that 23% uh, was, you know, was universal and everybody said, oh my gosh, you nailed it. I can't believe it. But um, when I read, I remember reading the reviews and most of the reviews were just some version of the problem is it's just not funny. And that was actually a much easier review for me to read. You know what I mean? Again, it, with the, con- uh, of course, the caveat that I wish that everybody loved the movie, but that's of course not possible. Comedy is subjective. But hearing all of like reading these reviews where they said, this is just, the problem is the movie is just fundamentally not funny. But for me, I was kind of able to wrap myself in a shield because, you know, we tested the movie, you know, like we took it out. Uh, it wasn't for like, you know, we went out to like, sleep or uh, I don't remember where the hell we went, uh, not City Valley, but we took it out way, way away from like your like sort of critical Hollywood crowd or whatever, right? Just sort of a nice suburban area and watch the movie and it killed, you know, it was like one of those things where it was like one of those like a real highlight moment of my life watching the movie because I was so afraid, of course, like literally for the first time we were showing the movie to a, you know, 300 random strangers and I have no idea what the reaction is going to be. And the movie played so much better than I thought it was going to be. You know, there were moments, you know, in the and there were also places that didn't work and that we had to trim out because there were dead zones and all that. I don't want to say it was all roses. Pardon me. But watching that and seeing the uproarious laughter, there were places where we actually had to go in and add a little bit of air because they were laughing too hard that they didn't hear the next line, you know? And that was, and again, they had no vested interest. They did not know me. They did not know this movie. They were pulled off the street. And so being able to see that play and actually watch with sort of my own two eyes and watch the movie play as well as it did, that, that, that cushioned the blow a little bit from all of those reviews that basically said, yeah, it's just not funny. Um, because, you know, I, I believe, you know, uh, every sort of, you know, review or a user comment or whatever that I've ever read where they say the movie was not funny, hey, I, I get it. There are certain comedies that are beloved that just whatever reason, they don't hit my pleasure centers quite as cleanly as they do others. And I'm like, oh, I wish I liked that as much as you did. Um, but I'm, I appreciate the movie regardless because I know it has an audience, you know. And so, you know, waiting kind of fell in that same sort of uh, that, that same sort of place, which is definitely there are, you know, uh, there are there's comedy in there that is not for everybody. And they're just going to say, oh, no, this is just so lowest common denominator. Um, and this is not, you know, this this ain't it. Uh, but for a certain audience, they'll go, ah, it seems lowest common denominator. But there's actually a little bit more wit and uh, slightness going on than maybe you would uh, initially realize, you know. But anyway. Yeah, and I think a lot of uh, a lot of that credit goes to the casting again, because um, this script with different people could have come off very differently. Um, but I think the cast that you got were so delightful and so charismatic and so endearing that you hear the, you hear these words coming out of their mouth. On one hand, you're like, oh my gosh, but on the other hand, it's they're just so charming and so likable uh, yeah. that you can't help but root for them. And uh, I, I think that's the the big draw, like what you're saying with Ryan Reynolds. He's he's kind of got the the pin in that type of character. Even even now playing Deadpool, he's like genetically engineered to play Deadpool, right? And but you you, you kind of see that throughout most of his career, he plays the 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 douchey, lovable frat boy, right? In, in a lot of his movies, and uh, Anna Ferris, same thing. Justin Long, very likable. Even uh, uh, Mitch, uh, the character, the guy that played Mitch. I mean, he doesn't say anything through the whole movie, but <laughs> at the end, is just like. He, 
it's almost that cathartic release of what probably some people in the audience were thinking, like, you guys are a bunch of losers, man. What is your problem? And then he becomes one of us, right? One of us. And uh, so I, I just think that's part of the the appeal of this movie is is that cast and how likable they are. So I want to talk about some, some scenes in the movie. And um, the first thing is, like you said, it was shot – really is just a day in the life a one one day at this restaurant unnamed or not unnamed but shenanigans um obviously a, a play in for bennegan's and i think i read an interview where you actually filmed it in a bennegan's uh what did it take to get bennegan's to sign off on that it was just a local bennegan it was very important to me that you know, i wanted that wood and brass uh because that's not just bennegan's that's also tgi fridays that's also applebee's you know centralized bar and the only thing that really changes is the shit on the walls. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, uh, Chili's is Sec Tex-Mex and, uh, you know, uh, Bennigan's is Irish pub or whatever. But that's the sort of thing. But, yeah, um, that was that was huge. That was a major, major sort of battle that we get uh, that we get that. That was, you know, again, the one of the stars of the, the movie is the restaurant itself and it needs to feel uh, authentic. Uh, but, yeah, we found a local Bennigan's in Kenner, Louisiana. Um, that was, and we basically, uh, went to them and said, Hey, we'd like to shoot there. We need to shoot it there for a month. And would you guys be willing to close down? And they said, okay, but you are going to have to pay us a lot more money because we're going to have to do a big grand reopening. Uh, and so it, that was a major, major expense, uh, for that $3 million movie was just the location. Um, and then, um, after we finished wrapping, uh, we gave them, of course, all the money for the grand reopening and then they never reopened. They just stayed closed and they kept the money. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, you know what the truth is, I don't remember or know the exact uh, machinations that went into uh, getting the thing, but you know, our location, uh, person down there, uh, found it and, uh, yeah, I'm very, very thankful that we were, cause there were definitely a couple other locations that uh, like my line producer was really pushing me to go after because it was so much uh, cheaper. But that was that was one where I really kind of stood my ground and I knew that that was that was something that we really really needed precisely that um, you know that that type of restaurant to really sell uh, to sell the world correctly. Yeah, it, like you're saying too, it is it is every Applebee's, every Chili's, every TGI Fridays yeah. has that same kind of aesthetic look and feel, which led it led to the credibility of of waiting and and being uh, kind of that slice of life type of movie. Uh, so uh, the overarching kind of thing in waiting is this the penis showing game, and and like you said at the beginning, the very front page of your script and the almost the first line of the movie is, all right, how what what's your feeling on full frontal male nudity, and it it it. it Right there, if you don't know what kind of movie you're watching, you were just told what kind of movie you're watching. Turn back now if you don't want to see the rest of it, right? And uh, the penis showing game, as uh, kind of abhorrent as it is in, in the movie and stuff, really, though, when Shy McBride at closer to the end of the movie really talks about this philosophical, metaphorical uh, uh, meaning of the penis showing game as a catalyst for change and to, and when he's talking to Dean, you know, what this game really means to the restaurant is it generated uh, good morale and it made everybody kind of joke with each other. And in turn, now that they kind of appreciate each other as employees, that appreciation turned over to the customers and the customers got better service and the restaurant started making money. So he tells and Dean's going through this existential quarter life crisis. And so Shy McBride uh, Bishop tells Dean's like, what's going to be your, your quote unquote penis show a game to, to launch your life into a different direction. And then I was thinking, Oh my gosh, did he just make 
this game deep. <laughs> so that that was uh, it, it kind of ingenious. I, I got to tell you, that was pretty interesting. Tell me the, the thought prop. Now, you based it on an actual like thing that happened in your life, but where did it turn to become this this catalyst of change, this philosophical yeah. moment? Yeah, you know what? Uh, like everything, uh, you know, it, it, the whole thing's an evolving process. It started off, you know, just I thought it was a funny thing. You know what I mean? I have a puerile sense of humor. Uh, I waited tables and they played this game and I could not believe that they did it. And it was absolutely ridiculous. But it was also like so that was like this was a real thing that actually happened to me that I thought was absurd. So, uh, again, I wanted this to feel uh, I wanted it to feel real, like I, the movie to feel real. Um, and I thought, OK, now in this very specific restaurant, Steak and Ale, we played this game. But I bet in other restaurants and, you know, there's that always that circle game that kids would play or whatever. And it was like, it's sort of a take on that or whatever. But I was like, uh, this is so specific. Right. That I and, and just absolutely ridiculous and attention grabbing. And I wanted something kind of uh, offensive that would make people go, oh, my God, they play this game where they show their dicks to each other. And all the there's different positions and <laughs> all of that, you know, and those were most like I made up a couple of them. But most of those positions were actual positions they played in the in that real restaurant. So, like, it was less of me being a good writer and me just being a good journaler, uh, you know. But, uh, but anyway, so you know, that was the or uh, that was the initial thought of like. And I remember actually, uh, um, my buddy Mike. I was talking to him and I was like, yeah, I started writing this thing about uh, waiting tables, and he was like. Are you going to put the thing about the penis showing game in it? And I was like, I had not even thought of that. And it was like, that's a good idea. <laughs> it was like, because I just told him that story of waiting tables. Uh, and he was like, that's absolutely insane. You got to put that in a script, you know? So that was just like the initial was, let's just write this thing. It'll be an ongoing thing where amid everything else that's going on, uh, these guys, um, you know, they, they, they show their general to each other. There also was, I will say, uh, the, the slightly, uh, if you can, uh, uh, believe it there was a the slightly higher minded thought about it was i wanted to show senseless male rituals like that was a that was a big thing to me i liked the idea of i am going to uh painstakingly take the time to pull down my pants and show you my genitals and if you look i'm going to call you gay for looking it was to my mind that was so um and that I, I'm, you know what? Listen, my memory is so uh, hazy about all that. I don't think that that part was actually in the uh, in when we actually played at the steak and ale. Uh, I think I added that because uh, I thought it was I thought I thought it was just so silly and absurd. Yeah, I'm pretty sure at the actual steak and ale, you did not uh, call the person gay for looking at your genitals. You just tried to flash them to uh, to shock them. But I, I the reason I added that was because I thought it. It perfectly captured the stupidity of your average teenage twenty-something guy. <laughs> like it's just absolutely like you 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 guys are jackasses. Uh, you are absolute idiots. Um, so that was a uh, so that I, I'm pretty sure uh, I I added that in, uh, and that was the reason why. Um, so then, completely separately, sort of to answer uh, the beginning part of your question. I'd written a, um, the scene with a bishop where he's talking to Dean, and to be honest, it didn't have any of that. It, it was um, he was talking. I had it. Um, if my, my memory uh, is so hazy, but I, my recollection of it was that it was a much more sort of like basic. He was just talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs because that was something that I, I, you know, I took a psych class and I was reading about, and I, and I thought that that was kind of interesting, and I was able to make it applicable to what he was going through. 
But then um, I remember a friend of Dean's, uh, she was a, a friend of his, she read the script and she was just like, you know what Bishop says? It's, I don't know, you built him up as this like really interesting, cool character. But what he says is like, it's fine, but it's not really that like, you know, and so it, that kind of struck with me. And, you know, again, the, the process waiting went through so many rewrites. I cannot even tell you like over the, I wrote it for three, you know, like from 97 to 2000 before I sold the script. I was constantly rewriting. When I started working at TGI Fridays, I rewrote it and added some of the specific things that happened at Fridays. You know, it was just a constant, you know, uh, when you have nothing else to do, uh, like you, I can just pick at it and tinker with it all the time. So it was a, a very, very evolved process. And, but yeah, she just said, hey, what Bishop is saying here, isn't that interesting? You need to write something that is, uh, you know, that rises to the level of the kind of mystique that you created for the character. And from that, I was like, oh yeah, you know what? And then I was like, and also, uh, it gives a little bit more of a reason for the penis showing to exist rather than just something that is funny or a sight gag or some raunchy sort of comedy. You know, it was like, oh, that was, you know, that's actually, uh, th that would be a really, really good way to sort of tie it all together to make it, you know, have a little bit, um, have a little bit more on its mind rather than, uh, you know, than just, again, just being a uh, silly, raunchy sight gag. Yeah, and it, it you know it had the potential to be exactly what you're just saying there, just a silly raunchy <laughs> sight gag throughout the movie. But what uh, shy? Yeah, it that, is. That, it is. It is. But but Shy McBride gave it deeper meaning and 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 something for the audience to kind of think about and go, huh? <laughs> you know, and then think about that. So I, I thought so it was really good. Shy McBride is so good in that. Shy was a um that was actually a role that we were not able to cast. Like I was um. I originally had my conception for that role was actually like a Steve Buscemi type, right? Someone like that. Yeah, that was sort of the original, like, so, or, or, um, I remember there was this movie called uh, Dead Again, I want to say. Kenneth Branagh directed it, and uh, Robin Williams played this role where he's completely against type, where he played this sort of calm, like psychologist sort of presence or something like that. Anyway, those were, that was like, you know, Jeff Goldblum maybe, like those were the kind of what I had in my mind. And, um, but then I remember I was actually in uh, pre-production and then because we were having a difficult time sort of casting the role and finding the right person. And then they showed me Shy and I just talked to him on the phone and the way he described it and hearing that voice of his, that gravitas that comes, you know, and he was like, yeah, I'm always gonna be uh, smoking a cigarette. And, you know, and just like, and I was like, man, it was not what I had in my mind. Like that was one of those, uh, one of the few examples, almost every character in the in the script, they ended up being what I had in mind because because I was a first time filmmaker, I wanted, I wanted it to be as easy on me as possible. So I directed people, I found people who are exactly like, uh, to, they were already very close to that way anyway. So I knew it was gonna be easy to direct them. Uh, maybe the one uh, counter example to that was Shy, who was, he was completely different than what I had in my mind. But as soon as I actually talked to him and heard him and heard his sort of cadence and all of that, I was like, oh man, this is so much better than anything that I had in my mind, but yeah. Yeah, he was, he was great. So um, I want to talk about Monty for a second, Monty the character. Um, what's the story about the creation of that character, and what did it take for to pitch it to Ryan Reynolds and tell him, it's like, okay, you're going to hit on minors th throughout the whole movie, and and, and, and you got to be okay with that. So so tell me a little bit about that because he – and Ryan Reynolds is the only guy I think that could have played that role so, so talking about the evolution of that character and, and getting Ryan Reynolds to, to look at the words on the script and him go, sure. 
so yeah, you know, listen, Ryan, uh, the, the role, like Monty has all of, you know, pretty much all of the best lines in the movie. Uh, you know, he's a, it, and, and the type of line delivery is that sort of sarcastic, wry, you know, ironic sort of intonation. And I think he just read it immediately and was just like, I'm in, you know, he read that initial, like, how do you feel about frontal male nudity? And then that whole long diatribe afterwards, he said, when he read that, he was just like, he immediately knew what he was going to do with it. You know, it was one, it was one of those cases where almost like, again, uh, when, you know, when you have, uh, when I having lived with the script as long as I did, I had some very specific ideas of how all of the lines, like the, like the, uh, not necessarily uh, down to the line reading, although sometimes that was the case, but, but also just like the, um, how, what the mood or uh, how it, in general, how it needed to be delivered. And with Ryan, I just never needed to direct him because he always got it. You know what I mean? Like there was, um, there was a very specific example where I had a, I had it in my mind on how a line was going to be read, which was, uh, it's, it's very, very uh, simple. He's talking about Amy. And uh, because Dean is uh, interested in, you know, Amy and there's a little bit of what's going on. And Dean's like, uh, I really like her. She's a cool chick or whatever. And then Monty says, yeah, she's a cool chick. You know, I'd do her. Hell, I'd probably even pay. And then he like, he's like, goes like, like he's, and then he's just under his breath. He goes, I would. And that was not how I had it in my mind at all. And then watching him read it that way, it was so much funnier than how I had it. Like that's just a, a very kind of, that was always one that sort of stuck out of my mind. But yeah, you know, Ryan, he just loved the script. But I think one of the funniest scenes in the movie, and I, and I think what is the, the signature moment, I think, for waiting, is that closer to the beginning of the movie, that Karen scene, where everybody does something to this lady's food because she's being such a jerk to all the wait staff. And, and really, the rule, I think, of don't mess with people that handle your food was invented, I think, invented at that very moment. And just the things that are done to her plate of food, as, as a person that's a foodie, and I, I write about food, I talk about food. I go out to restaurants and eat a lot. I, I am a big proponent of do not mess with people that handle your food. Do they do that? No. They uh, 90% of the time that's never going to happen. But there's that little 10% or even 5% that could happen and I'm not going to be a victim of that 5%. But that scene, my god, was so hilarious and, and I think what drew a lot of people in because it was shown in the previews of the movie, right? So people are going to want to watch that and say, how did it get there? Where where is it going? And um but who played who played the Karen? She was great. I mean, she was really hateable and uh, really hilarious. Oh, you know what? Um, so I, I, I feel so bad because I don't remember her first name. Uh, her last name is Morgan. And I know her because she was uh, Jackie Morgan was our line producer. It was his wife. And she was the sweetest woman in real life. I cannot even tell you how nice she was. But her ability to do that was I was like, you know, for a lot of the day player roles, uh, we, you know, we had to cast locally in, uh, in Louisiana, New Orleans and, you know, the surrounding area. And, uh, you know, sometimes when you're shooting on location, you can sort of have some uh, slim pickings, but um, we, I, I mean, more than just her, I mean, we, I, I love, I love so many of our day player roles. I'm obsessed with so many of them. I've talked to them about it, but 
yeah, she just, she absolutely just dialed in and uh, yeah, she killed it. But yeah, she, you would, you would have to believe from her performance that she was not acting and that that is sort of her resting uh, uh, bitch face situation, but that is not the case whatsoever. She was really just an absolutely sweet person. And uh, she had the patience of a saint because she, uh, she was married to Jackie uh, Morgan, who was a pain in the ass. Uh, no, Jackie's great, but uh, he's never going to say I watch this, but. Uh, anyway, yeah, but uh, yeah, no, she was amazing. Um, uh, yeah, that scene was not in the original draft when I sold it to um, when I sold it to Artisan. Um, you know, I was um, at the time waiting. I will say over the uh, rewrites, and certainly once it came out to Hollywood, it got a little bit bigger, it got a little bit broader. Um, you know, American Pie had come out, uh, Road Trip had come out. There was a scene in Road Trip where I remember they fucked with the food in some small way. Uh, it was it was very minor, but in any case, uh, and that was definitely one of the things that in the rewrite with Artisan when I was still working with them that they were like, yeah, we need to make this a little bit bigger. And I and I'll be honest, at that time I, I pushed up against it because um, because what I you know what I was originally sort of going for was something a little bit more grounded. And that scene is not quite as grounded. It's, it's literally sort of as simple as that. Um, but then, you know, you add it. And for me, uh, a big part of it was I was able to wrap my mind around it a little bit more when they're doing all the fucking with the food in their different ways and they're all doing gross things. And then he's going to add some guacamole and he's going to blow his nose into it and wrap it stops. And it's like, no, you can't make Mexican continental. Like, even if they're going to fuck with the food, they've got a standard that you need to stand by. Uh, so, like, that was something I was able to kind of grab onto to make it a little bit more elevated than what was essentially kind of a gross out sort of scene. But uh, sort of uh, uh, to your point, it was that was one of those things that was featured very prominently in the in the trailer, and it was one of those things uh, that kind of grabbed people. And it did reach to the to the bigger question, or I'm sorry, the bigger statement, which is, yeah, don't be rude to your server. Like that's, are you insane? These people handle your food. Watch out, you know. In my experience, uh, you know, yeah, people. A lot of times, I think people took the wrong lesson from that scene, which is don't ever send your food back. Which is not the which is not the point. Like if your if your steak is overcooked or undercooked or your something's wrong with the meal. Uh, you have every right. You're paying for this. You send the food back, but just be cool about it. You know, obviously right. the server isn't the one who cooked it. A mistake was made. They're making lots of food. Just be cool about it. And the server wants to do well by you. They, they want a good tip from you. So they want to handle this as, um, you know, and to your satisfaction as much as possible. So as long as you're not rude. Uh, no one's going to do anything to your to uh, to your food. But, you know, uh, my own experience in my entire life as a server, I fucked with one person's food and they weren't rude to me. They were rude to uh, a waitress friend. Like they were just the woman was awful. Her children were awesome. Uh, awful, I should say. Uh, they were awesomely awful. And uh, yeah, and then she took the food back and the uh, her boyfriend was the, the chef and they like fucked with the food. Uh, and I, I know I did something. I don't remember what I did. I remember what I did, but I, I'm saying right now, I don't remember what I did, but it was not very nice. Uh, and it was because she was an awful human being. Um, but in any case, that was in my entire experience, that was the one time I'd ever um, personally been involved with something. And again, it wasn't even for me. It was for someone else because she had just like, she was in tears because this woman was being awful to her. But yeah, anyway, but yeah, so uh, I had at the time, I, had, I think I had to be dragged a little bit kicking and screaming to write that scene because I felt like, oh, this is just going to be a gross out scene that we've seen before and other times, you know, and I just wasn't sure that how I felt about that. Um, but then what the scene actually ultimately ended up becoming, uh, I felt I felt really, really good about it. 
Well, I think a lot of wait staff folks that that um, I know and talk to have lived vicariously through that scene and probably wanted to do a lot of those things that that scene depicted. Uh, so, and, and you created a whole new fear in diners. So, congrats on that. So. <laughs> Um, there's about, uh, in about an hour, uh, into the movie, there's this really cool long take, um, of the dinner rush scene that, that kind of starts with Naomi, uh, screaming at people. But it, from there, it kind of does this continuous long shot, uh, and it, and it goes from, you know, fast forward and, and stuff like that. Uh, that, I thought in the, in the movie, that was a really great kind of artistic shot. It was really cool. So, um, how long did that take to rehearse and get right for everybody to get it nailed the first try yeah um yeah that was you know one of those you know things that i kind of had uh, uh in mind very early on the last shot to sort of close out the dinner rush i wanted it to be this nice really long sort of tracking shot through the entire restaurant where we're checking in on literally every single character you know that was one of those things that was sort of you know conceptually in the script from a um from a pretty early point that like this will be the thing to close uh you know um I, i'll be honest at the time we didn't um i didn't foresee speeding it up because there are times where we literally go fast motion and that ended up just being for pace, you know, like it was one of those things where it sounded, it, it, it was really, um, it was, it was a really, really cool shot, but there was enough dead zones in it that we're like, okay, let's just speed up past the boring parts. Uh, you're still going to get the, the feel of it, but, um, but uh, you know, and let's just highlight all of the, uh, all of the jokes and all of the fun little moments and then cut out some of the filler uh, with that quick little speed up uh, in the, in those uh, few places. But um but yeah, um, I want to say that it took, um, I think we had half an, um, it was shot at night. Uh, we had half of a, half of a day essentially to shoot it. Um, so, you know, we, I don't remember what we did in the first half of the day. That was, it, it was a very ambitious shot to do in essentially, you know, whatever that was, six hours time or something like that. Um, but, um, but yeah, you know, um, I think we were able, because, you know, it's just like you have all of these extras, it's everybody, everyone's going to hit their marks, everyone, you know, there's a lot of day players, there's a lot of people, uh, you know, and, uh, and all of that. But yeah, I think uh, we ended up probably rehearsing, going through it just, you know, uh, maybe um, for tour, it took a long time to get it all lit and all of that. And that is in that same period of time. But I think we rehearsed it for maybe an hour, just kind of going through, going through, and then shot it several times. I want to say we did four takes, something like that, three or four takes. And um, and yeah, it, listen, it was there was a you know there was a uh, some problem solving going on because they you know they at the very end of it they have to go into the uh, into the bathroom and then we had to set up a little ramp so that it could go up and you could go over the stall to see Radimus having sex uh, with his girlfriend uh, in the bathroom stall. There was definitely some, quite a few moving parts with that. Uh, and again, particularly ambitious, just given uh, given our low budget. But I was, uh, but it, yeah, really, it, it it was it was one of those things that I really, really wanted. Uh, I wanted my uh, my big movie geek shot, and I was very, very happy uh, that we were able to uh, to get some semblance of that. Yeah, it was a it was a really neat shot. And and speaking of of Naomi's anger issues, that kind of triggered that whole long shot, long take. Uh, I gotta say, she was probably the breakout for me, the breakout character, because she was so angry and it was so funny. And what did I mean? What did Alana have to do on a daily basis to kind of get in that mindset of just being pissed off all the time? Like it was so hilarious. I mean, listen, if you've watched, I mean, Alana Yubak has had an amazing career. Uh, she is, she's been in a million things and yeah, she's, she's incredible. The truth is, similarly, 
you're you're talk about she is the sweetest girl like she is so nice she's just naturally funny she's just one of those people who funny who understand the joke and she just got it it was I, I can't even there might have been a couple places where I said, OK, now dial it down a little bit, you know, because it'd be so big. But honestly, she just like that, that, you know, that opening shot that you're talking about, watching her turn on a dime from like, you motherfucker, I don't want to look, I'm going to get rid of every last one of those cuts. And then as soon as she turns, she puts on the smile face like it is so good. Like I'm in, I'm sort of in awe of it. You know what I mean? But that was like, I think I said this earlier during the casting, when I was talking about the casting process, she was one of those people where she came in. Oh, and I remember the thing that she did when she went off on her little rant and she's going off and then she's pantomiming smoking a cigarette. And then when she did it, she like was her hands were trembling a little bit. And I was like, it was just a little choice she had made that I did not direct or whatever. And I was like, that is it. That is so perfectly encapsulating of her character. And she just knew it uh, immediately. Uh, yeah, so yeah, it's just just one of those perfect sort of situations where you find the absolute perfect actress. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't even know how much more I can say. Oh, you know, I will say one thing. There were a couple more scenes with Naomi in it that we ended up cutting. She ended up being, when we did our test screenings, one of uh, the favorite character. Uh, you know, Monty, I'm sure, was like the number one character, but she might have literally been yes, number two. Um, she might have literally been number two. And but that was an iterative process because um, there was a time where there was a little too much of her where she became grating, where it became a little. So I think we got very, very fortunate in the editing of like maybe we cut out just one scene of hers or something like that. And we found that where she was on just enough. And every time she came on, she just absolutely uh, destroyed it. But yeah, no, I mean, that was just, uh, you know, she's just an amazing actress and, you know, just uh, put the camera on her and then hold on because she's going to kill it every time. You know? Yeah. That was a great balance too, because it, it did have the potential to be too much, but you gave us just enough for, for it to be funny and not annoying. And right. I, I thought that was a, a great choice because again, one of my favorite characters in the movie and just her outbursts are so hilarious and, and probably, you know, a, a lot of, uh, wait staff that works at a place a little too long like you're saying it, it gets to them and and it and it they become kind of naomi a little bit it's uh, so the the end credits w was particularly funny to me because you, you did end credit stingers on this one before marvel made it cool and sure. you got a ton of them on here there's uh dan going to the rednecks house instead of the party's house um and then you have nick's fever dream rap video which was hilarious uh and then the rube goldberg machine at the end so were all of those planned or would, did that come up like in the middle of filming like hey this would be fun let's do this so um i knew okay so i think the very end or i'm sorry the, like the end with dan i don't remember if that was initially conceived as an end credit thing i don't i don't believe it was um, so that was like the first little ending and we thought that was just sort of fun, but then, uh, you know, listen, we, I cast Andy Milanakis, Andy Milanakis just came in. This is before he had the Andy Milanakis show and he was just so fucking funny. And then I looked him up and I saw him doing these raps and I was like, man, it'd be so fun to have Nick and T-Dog do a rap over the end credits. And so, uh, and I was like, and if you do it, we'll shoot, you know, like we, if, if you'll write a rap and you'll come up with it. Uh, we'll shoot it. We'll come in on like one of our days off. We'll just shoot it on video and uh, we'll see how many people we can get to come out and, uh, you know, in, in the video. 
And uh, he loved it. And so Andy wrote this great rap. We de- there was definitely a little bit, uh, Andy had like a little bit of a looser sort of almost improvisational style. So I remember we worked on it a little bit to make sure it kind of hit, you know, hit so that we could really put it to a nice beat, the whole, the whole thing. But yeah, and that was just one of those things where, yeah, again, on a Saturday, uh, we just, a bunch of the, uh, a bunch of the, uh, you know, Louis came out, a bunch of the actresses came out and just dressed sleazy to be in this ridiculous rap, like rap video. Uh, one of the, the prop guys had this big cockroach costume for some reason. I cannot tell you why, but we're like, put it on. We'll put that in there. Why? Because I don't give a fuck. That's why, because it's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, but yeah. And, uh, his rap was so raunchy on the, in the movie, like the M- the MPAA gave us an NC-17 a couple times, and literally we just had to bleep out some of it. Like he says, "I'm gonna eat your pussy like Jeffrey Dahmer." <laughs> I think, and so we had to bleep that out in the in the theatrical cut. So yeah, we got an NC-17 largely because of just language from that rap video. Wow. So we, had to, we had to do a couple trims on some of the sight gags or whatever, but um, oh. Sorry, very, very quickly, I just want to say, going back to Alana Eubank and Naomi, um, this is just a great, uh, to let you know who she is. Originally in the script, um, you know, because Alana shows her uh, bush, and it's this, like, horrible, like, sort of awful thing. It's a big, gross-out sight gag. Now, originally in the movie, when I was getting the notes from the execs at Artisan, they were like, you got to get some boobs in this movie. Are you kidding me? Like, we got to see some tits. And, uh, And I was like... And listen, as much as I love seeing the nude female form, it felt like, ah, oh, I hate that in a movie where they just shoehorn in nudity. It feels so like, ugh, I, I just don't like it at all. And so um, even though, like, and so, but then I thought, okay, they said they want to see boobs. And I was like, what if we showed vagina? And and I, in my mind, and, and it was, and, the, and I'll, I'll be honest, the original version of the scene was not a gross out scene. It was, okay, we're going to see a vagina. And I thought it, and I was like, okay, A, it's getting female nudity in, which is what the studio wants. Like they were, again, they were very, very important. We gotta get nudity in this movie, right? And uh, and I was like, okay, so this is a way to show nudity. It's a little bit different. It's not just boobs, it's a vagina, but also it's coming off of, um, uh, uh, Radimus had just shown his testicles, right? And it's the one time in the movie, it's like a sight like, whoa, where did that come from? You weren't expecting to see balls and suddenly like, you know, cause in the movie, every time they do the penis showing game, you see them getting it ready, but then we cut away and we just show the reaction of the person who is seeing it, but we don't actually show it because you can't have a movie. That's just uh, the idea of uh, male nudity is really funny. Seeing a bunch of male nudity all the time is fucking kind of ugh, gives you the creeps. So, um, but I thought, okay, one time in the movie we'll do it and it'll be a complete non sequitur. We're going to cut to these, uh, Radimus showing his testicles and it's going to make everybody laugh because they, they got fooled by the penis showing game like the servers do. And so that was the, that was always in the script. But then I was like, okay, how about we add in the whole part of like the girls would never play this game. Why? Because of that. And then you cut to, uh, Anna Ferris's character, uh, um, um, Serena showing her vagina. And again, it would be a nice, well-coiffed vagina that is uh, attractive to look at. And, um, and and again, pleasing the studio who wants nudity. And I was able to make it, and, and at the time it was to make it part of a, a bigger point, which is the girls could never play the game because the guys would, I would, you know, if a girl's gonna show me her vagina, that would be worth taking a kick in the ass. That's essentially her point. You guys would take a kick in the ass just to see a girl naked. So no, that'll never work. And, uh, but Anna Ferris said, yeah, I don't want to do that. 
to show my vagina. And also, I don't want to double. I don't want people thinking that's my vagina. She'd already had a big scene, scary movie where she had like a big, crazy vagina. And she was like, I just really don't want to do that. And um, so I said, OK, uh, because I had no choice. She wasn't going to do it. Uh, but the studio, uh, you know, our finance, there was no studio, but our finances were like, we got to figure out something. Uh, and then um, I was like, they were like, what about Alana? Talk to her. So I had, to have, I had to sit down with Alana. And I remember Alana told me she thought I was going to fire her. She thought that she wasn't doing a good job, which is like you watch her performance and you're like, what the fuck? But um, she's so good. But uh, anyway, I was like, so and I, I said basically what I just said to you. I kind of walked her through it. And I was like, so I was trying to think of what the other characters would do. You know, what, are there any other characters who might be willing to show their vagina where it would make sense? Because uh, the Amy character played by Caitlin Doubleday, she was like too nice. It, it wouldn't have quite made sense for her character. But I was like, Naomi, I could see. And she goes, okay, I'll do it under one condition. It's got to be the nastiest vagina you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> and again, if you ever need any other uh, confirmation that she's the coolest fucking person, like that was her immediate thought. Yes, I'll do it, but it's got to be disgusting. And, uh, and I was like, so what was originally supposed to be this uh, a thing for, you know, like that? again, calling it what it is, mild titillation per the studio and the financiers uh, sort of request ended up being a, uh, a big, uh, a big sight gag, uh, which again, you know, your taste may vary on, uh, on, you know, how you feel about that sort of thing, but it definitely made it into a big jokey thing as opposed to just something that's like, Oh, good. We get to see a girl naked. But anyway, uh, sorry. Um, I'm completely on what, what were we asking before? That's all right. Now we were just talking about the, the end credit stingers and that Rube, the oh, Rube yeah. Goldberg machine I wanted to talk to you about though. So what, what was going on with that? Yeah, so the theme of uh, my, my production designer, uh, Deborah Herbert, so fucking good, man. She was amazing. She just cared so much because the, there is a theme in shenanigans. It is not like, again, you had Irish pub for Bennigan's, you had South of the Border, Tex-Mex or whatever for Chili's or whatever. We were like, what is the theme of shenanigans? And we just sat there and we were thinking, and we wanted it to be, you know, like tomfoolery, urban legends and myths, you know what I mean? Apothecary, like cure-alls and tonics and snake oil salesmen and all of that sort of stuff. Like those were the things that we kind of had in our mind about what would be the individual areas. So like, and if you actually were like to pause it and look around, like Dean's area is the urban legends and myths. There's like a Loch Ness monster and the Yeti. And that's all of the shit that's on the walls are, are, are built around that sort of theme. And then Amy's section again, is this like uh, the apothecary section with cure-alls and tonics and snake oil salesmen stuff and all of that. And then I, and I said to her, I was like, oh, it'd be cool to maybe have like a visual representation of a Rube Goldberg contraption. You know what I mean? I was like, it doesn't have to work or whatever, but I just want it to be one of those things that you saw when you were a kid, like the foghorn leghorn, like crazy long contraption, you pull down the thing and it makes the thing go and all of that. Just something that visually, even uh, still, you would look at it and understand what that represents. And, um, and I, so I wanted that for one of the other sections, uh, Naomi's section, uh, I'm pretty sure. And um, so then she had watched a commercial that had a big Rubel Goldberg contraption. I don't even remember what the commercial was for, but she got inspired and she said, hey, um, can I make the Rubel Goldberg contraption work? And I was like, you fucking serious? Yes. Absolutely. Not only that, if you do make it work, I'll put it in the movie. And uh, so, yeah, she just did it. And uh, I remember at one point she she asked me because they couldn't figure out a way to make it work. And she was like, 
So we're going to have somebody off behind the scenes pull this little lever to make, and I was like, nope, no, 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 you cannot do that. It, it, this is a Rube Goldberg contraption. It has to be a Rube Goldberg contraption. That is the deal. It must work. And then uh, she made it work. And uh, yeah, and so I, I was like, wow, we actually actually did it. So uh, I held up my end of the deal, which is, I was it was a pleasure to do, which is, uh, yeah, we put it at the very end credit of the movie. We shot that on the same day that we shot the music video. We just had everybody, uh, you know, everybody did the music video and then everybody gathered around and she put the mug down and made the thing and the pop and the balloon and the filled with water and all of that shit. And it, pop the beer thing off and it poured it into the mug. And uh, you hear, if you listen to it, you can hear everybody cheering. And that was sincere cheers because we are, that was our first try. We tried shooting it one more time just for backup or whatever. And we weren't able to do it a second time. It didn't work the second time. And we were like, fuck it, we got it. Yeah, it was great. I, I was watching it. I was kind of rooting for it. <laughs> and I was like, it was, it was great. It was so, so funny. And I, and I think just a really funny ending if you made it all the way through the credits. But, uh, well, I want to be respectful of your time. I had a great time talking to you, waiting, I think, just to find a generation of wait staff for, for those times and, and even now. Um, and, and listeners, if you made it this far, congratulations. Uh, don't send me emails. Um, <laughs> but, uh, Rob, I, I appreciate it so much. Uh, uh, for for coming on uh do you want to give you a moment here just to to plug whatever you're allowed to plug that's not being struck at the moment um and where can people find you on uh, social media and whatnot uh listen there is nothing to plug okay right now yeah there's a, sort of the, the downtime i'm working on stuff but i wouldn't even bring up what those things are because most stuff doesn't get made uh, you know, I've, uh, I've worked for uh, for 23 years, and I've uh, I've you know been hired to write lots of stuff, but I've only gotten a few things made because it's fucking hard to get stuff made. So I don't want to jinx it. I'm not going to do that, Rich. I'm not going to do that. Um, so, uh, but yeah, so uh, you know, hope have have a few things that I'm excited about that when the strike um, ends, hopefully we will see those things to fruition. Uh, but beyond that, you know what? The truth is I'm not even really uh, active on social media. I have a Twitter that I never – I mean I'll go on Twitter just to uh, read what mean people say about other mean people uh, occasionally, but I never post. Uh, you, you found me on Facebook. I really never post on Facebook. So, yeah, I'm uh, – um, you know, you, you can find me there if you want to say hi, but other than that, uh, nah, I'm not I'm, – I got nothing to plug. I was just like, you know what? You reached out. You said, hey, do you want to talk about the movie? I hadn't thought about it or talked about it in so long, and I was like, ah, fuck it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I have nothing to sell. I have nothing. Uh, I just thought it was – I was I was flattered that you asked, so um, that's uh, certainly enough for me. And uh, as you said, if you were able to make it uh, an hour and a half into this – uh, then uh, you're, you're doing the Lord's work, listener. <laughs> well, again, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Uh, waiting, if you want to watch yeah. it, is streaming now on Peacock. Uh, I had a little bit of trouble finding it, but uh, I did find it on Peacock, so it is there. Um, and follow us on social media, at Eat Your Content on Instagram and TikTok, and make sure to like, follow, and subscribe on the podcast player of your choice so you know what's coming on next. Rob, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Likewise. Thanks, Rich.